It's no stretch to say that all of us in one way or another have trust issues. I'll give an example, just trying to develop a picture for you in that. The trust fall exercise. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, the way this goes. Uh, sometimes it's used in team building uh, exercises. The idea is you, you have somebody come up behind you and they say, all right, here's what I want you to do. Uh, when I say go, I want you to just drop back, just drop back, and I'm going to catch you and keep you uh, from falling. And understandably, for most of us, most of us, there's a little bit of nervousness uh, that, that comes with that go uh, moment, or even in the anticipation of that, that go moment. You know, are they going to catch me? Can they catch me? Will they catch me? Do they, do they intend to catch me? All, all of that thing. So we have these hesitation. We have these trust issues. Where I'm going with that is enlarge that, extrapolate from that, not just our, our struggle with trusting a person to catch us as we just drop back, but the Lord himself, in many respects, is calling us to do that very thing, to trust him, fall back, and let him catch us. Not just in the great and eternal things, though certainly that, but in the everyday in the everyday and, and very ordinary things, not, not just in the theoretical realm, but in the practical, uh, very much so. Um, this is quite an extraordinary thing for us to, to consider here this morning, the idea of what does it really mean practically to trust God. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, we're not going into Matthew this morning. Uh, we're, this actually... Uh, sets us up next time we're in Matthew for the text there that we will be looking at uh, in, in a few weeks. But um, Proverbs 3, where we're looking uh, here this morning, does set us up for that. If you're trying to find that, by the way, the Psalms is the heart of your Bible right there in the middle, one book to the right, Proverbs. Uh, and Proverbs 3 is, is where we are. And just a little disclosure uh, in terms of why, why this, why are you bringing this up? Well, part of it has to do with setting us up with what's coming in, in Matthew in, in that text. Part of it has to do, just in, in a candor, the leaders of this church right now are going through the throes, the joys of budget preparations for the coming year, so it's much on the mind of your, your elders and your, and your deacons. Uh, but also, just to be honest, just to be candid, uh, it's something that we have to wrestle with and think about all the time, uh, this, this, these practical matters of how God is calling us to trust Him with everything, including our finances, our possessions. And I use our, put that in quotation marks. We're going to come back to why that needs to be in quotation marks in a minute. There's a quote there in your quotes and notes. Uh, Luke had us read the second one uh, earlier. I, I want to also tag on there, but actually read the first one. It's from Martin Luther. Listen to what Luther said. So this is uh, centuries ago, but very contemporary. You can't preach the gospel unless you preach it in light of the issues with which men struggle. You can't preach the gospel unless you preach it in light of the issues with which men struggle. My friends, we struggle here. Let's just be honest. We do struggle here. So with all that, that long setup, Proverbs 3, verses 9 through 10 is where we're really honing on here this morning, honing in on, but I do want to read verses 1 through 12. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 
honing in on verses 9 through 10. What you're going to see here as I'm reading this are in these 12 verses, six couplets, okay? And what you see with the couplets is the first half is this thing that we are to be and to do, and then the assurance that comes propelling that, assuring uh, and enabling us to, to do the very thing we're being called to be and to do. Okay, that's, that's what you see with every one of these six couplets. Verses 9 and 10 is no exception at all. We're going to drill down into that here in just a few minutes. Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 10. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Uh, thank you for the opportunity for this week to um, be started, to be begun uh, in this way as uh, we gather together uh, here in this way, in this place at this time. And we humbly ask that you would take this whole hour, every bit of it, and set the course of the days ahead accordingly recalibrate our sights. We drift. Oh, we drift so easily, so quickly. These songs that we have sung just over the last few minutes are like medicine to our, our bones if we can just hear not just the, the, the melody of the music, but the beauty, the beauty, the wonder, the truth that we have been uh, soaking in just in these, these last few minutes. And we Ask now that you would help us as we come to your word. We ask uh, that you, the, the living word, would give us, as we so often say in moments like this, ears with which to hear. And, and we confess at the outset, even as we're asking for ears with which to hear, that we are in many ways deaf. Uh, we are very hard of hearing. Our, our necks are, are stiff. Our wills are stubborn. Um, we may have heard this text a, a gazillion times over. And, and our lives bear little mark uh, from that. Or perhaps, or perhaps in your grace, perhaps uh, we are, are flourishing in these things. Then, oh, may we give you all the more praise for your mercy in that. We need your mercy. Oh, that you would teach and train our hearts. Uh, certainly I do as I try in some way to lisp uh, what needs to be said this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the many hours that I was spending on that road trip last weekend, coming back from New York and, and making my way back here, uh, among other things, I was listening to an audio production of C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. Uh, it's one of the books, one of the grand stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. 
Uh, if, you, uh, if you don't know the story, then like Herb said, we'll pray for you uh, regarding the shotguns and what your ignorance of the Narnia Chronicles. I don't know how those two things go together, but we'll, for today we'll do that. Uh, so here's the basics of the story. Aslan the Great Lion has given this mission to these two children from our world whose names are Eustace and Jill. And their mission, their task, is to go rescue the lost prince, the long-lost prince of Narnia. And along the way, along the course of this journey, they will find themselves venturing into this terrifying land of these dangerous, well, (laughs) murderous giants. They will find themselves going down into the depths of these, these caverns, this underworld beneath the world. And there they will encounter this horrifying witch, the queen of Underland, who over the, as of the course of their meeting, their engagement with her, discussions with her, tries to bewitch them, to befuddle them, to confuse them into thinking that the world in which they are now in, her world, the Underland, is actually the only world. And that which they think they have a memory of is actually a delusion. It's an illusion, a dream just a fantasy, that the only real world is her world, this dark, terrible place. And because of her lies and because of her magic, she nearly succeeds. She nearly convinces them that, in fact, that lie is true. Now, I bring that up because in many ways, what she's trying to do there reminds me in in so many profound ways that It's like that for us. The age in which we live today, our stage in history, our time on the stage, if you will, has been described rightfully by many scholars through the the years as that being a postmodern age. And what that means, among many other things, is that, that there is no truth. There is no reality. There is no bottom. There is no foundation. There is no story There is no grand narrative that explains everything. Therein, there is no um, standard. There is no uh, path. There is no rule to which we can appeal. It's all up for grabs, which, you know, in a a, uh, practical sort of way means something like this. Well, since it's just about me and not anything to do with you, then what I have is just mine and it has nothing to do with you because it's all up for grabs and it's all about, you know, ultimately where that goes is it's all about me. That's where you end up landing with that kind of rule. We may be uh, living above ground, but that's a very dark place to live. That's underland. That's underland. And we can get very confused and befuddled in that. And into that fog comes this clarion word from Proverbs. Now, some of you may know Proverbs is, in essence, the book of wisdom. It's, it's part of wisdom literature. There's a genre of wisdom literature that you find here in the Bible. And, and the theme that you find throughout here, this, 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 this echo, you need to understand as you're reading the Proverbs, is these, in some ways, are the words, in many ways, are the words of a king to a prince as to how to rule and rule wisely. These are the words of a father to a son as to how to live and to live wisely. Or another way to put that is, this is a God-shaped world 
And the only way it works in this God-shaped world is to live a God-shaped life. That's the only way it can work. That's according to the design specs. Or if I can just put it this way, in the Proverbs, in the whole of his word, but just specifically the Proverbs, God has given us his wisdom. He has shown us a path for life. And part of what that means is giving him his due. It's a God-shaped world. We're called to live God-shaped lives. He has shown us his, this, this wisdom, the path for life. Part of what that means is giving him his due, and meaning trusting him with the whole of ourselves, the whole of ourselves, and in very practical ways, daily ways, our finances, our money. In Proverbs, this text, the whole of Proverbs, is very clear on this score. In particular, two things, two very simple points. That of honoring the Lord and trusting his promises. Honoring the Lord and trusting his promises. It couldn't be more clear in terms of what we see in this passage. Uh, so let's just go there, drill down, see what we find. It's, it's well worth. There's treasure to be found here. Uh, verse 9, let's just read that again. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. All right, that's the, t- that's the call, the clarion clear call. What does that mean? Clear, that's the foundational issue here, so we need to be clear on what does it mean? What does it mean to, to honor anyone in, in this sense? Well, literally, it means to give them weight, to give them the appropriate weight, glory, honor, dignity, to understand, to acknowledge who they are and what they have done, to admire them accordingly and to express that in t- real tangible ways, to honor them, to honor the Lord, is to give him his due weight, the due glory, the due praise, the, uh, to, see, to recognize the whole of ourselves, who he is as the creator, the sustainer, the judge, the redeemer of all mankind in practical, observable ways, giving him all praise and all obedience. That's what it means to honor the Lord, to give him due weight. Now, how that can be fleshed out goes in a gazillion different directions, in every direction, in every way, but this text directs us in a particular path in terms of the practicalities of, of finances, our treasure, our, our money, our, our wealth. So we're called here to honor the Lord with our, our wealth. How do we do that? Thinking in terms of All of our possessions, all of our purchases, all the purposes behind all of our possessions and purposes and what we aim to do with and through that. It's completely holistic here. To honor him with our wealth includes all of that. And and specifically, uh, we're being called to, and maybe it puzzles, puzzles us in some ways, I'll explain it here in a minute, to honor him with the first fruits of all our produce. Now you're probably thinking, well, I don't have a garden, so how does that work? Well, that's, of course, appealing back to the, the context of, the, of ancient Israel, the agrarian farming context of ancient Israel, in which, uh, keeping in mind the, the, the flow of the seasons and the, uh, the, the festivals that they had 
and the, the ways in which they were called to give what was referred to as the first fruits, meaning the spring, the spring crop, the first harvest would come, and they were to give over to God as a sacrifice of thanks that first yield as an acknowledgement from whom it had come. Ultimately, not their hands, though they were the ones with the blisters and the calluses, but ultimately that crop, that first yield, had not come from their hands, nor would the rest of it come. It had come from the hand of God, and there was to be an acknowledgement of that and a deep sense of gratitude in that and expressed in a very practical, tangible way. So theirs was not to honor themselves with their wealth, with the first fruits, but him. And the same is true for us still today, farming or not, to honor the Lord with our wealth, with the first fruits of all our, our produce. Some of you may have heard me use this illustration. It's been a long time since I've gone in this direction. Um, the, the classic film Shenandoah. Uh, Jimmy Stewart stars as a gentleman by the name of Charlie Anderson, who is a Virginia farmer, stubbornly and desperately trying to keep his family out of the Civil War. If you know anything about the film, he does not succeed well in, in, in the course of, of events. But early on in the film, you get a glimpse into Charlie Anderson's character and, and what he thinks in terms of where the crop yields come from by listening to him pray. So the family gathers together at the dinner table, and you hear this, I'll just call it a somewhat unorthodox prayer. I would not say we would want our children to be, let this be the model for them. This is how Charlie prays. Lord, we cleared this land, we plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eaten if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food we're about to eat. Amen. That is not exactly what Solomon is trying to get us to understand here in Proverbs 3. Hardly. It is the Lord who provides. Now, before I go into the second point, we need to really think about this. This is a challenge to us to the degree that we will hear it. As we move through the shops or look through the catalogs and find ourselves struggling with the impulse that somehow what we're seeing and, and gazing at is a right for us to have, the brightest, newest, shiniest thing. That's a challenge to us, the challenge in terms of how do we what, are, wait, how, what is the agenda? What's the, 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 um, uh, the lens by which we look at our budgets and our, make our plans in terms of spending or saving or investing or whatever that might mean in terms of our closets and what we're putting in there or our garages and what we're putting in there or the house beside the garage and all of those things. I mean, this has to form and inform something of all of that because who's resources, ultimately, is this. Solomon is pointing to the reality that ultimately it is not ours, but it is the Lord's. We are but stewards, never owners. We don't own anything, biblically speaking. So this is a challenge to us in these ways. It's a, it's a, uh, a, 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 a color to consider 
some particular things. I just think you have to say one more thing on this, and that is a reminder that as we, as individual households represented even in this room, have to take seriously the biblical call to tithe that is still in force today to give 10% of our annual gross income to the Lord and begin with that. To begin with that as a foundational point and then be asking ourselves, Lord, how can I give more? As opposed to, oh my God, why is it got to be as much as 10? When he owns all of it anyway. In the Proverbs, in the whole of his word, but in the Proverbs, he is showing us the path of life, the ways of wisdom, and he is calling us to follow him, to trust him in everything, including this. Not just in the eternal, certainly, but in the everyday. Not just in the theoretical, but in the practical. Everywhere, in everything. But how can we do that? I mean, really, to, to do such a thing is, you know, obviously, in this world, in our day, in any day, in this place, in any place, is a radical thing to consider. It only works, it can only come about as we embrace and take to heart the radical promises of God, the trustful. Let's go back to the text. Uh, so verse 9, but let's push on into verse 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Well, wow. I mean, barns filled and vats bursting is obviously metaphor, imagery of abundance. Now, what is Solomon getting at here? What, what is it that we need to hear and take away from this? Is it, just to be a little provocative, is it what the TV preachers would have us to believe, that what God has in mind is your best life now and your health and your wealth, and that's what he is promising? Is that it? Is he the grand cosmic vending machine in, in the sky? Is he a great big Santa Claus? That's ultimately what that's all about. That's not at all what Proverbs 3, the whole of the Bible, is about. Let's just take a step back here and think about what the, just the, what the Proverbs, the nature of the Proverbs themselves. This, I mentioned this is a genre of literature, how we ought to read them, how we ought to understand them. These are not blanket promises. Do this, put the coin in, and this is what comes out. That's not what the Proverbs are. They're not just blanket promises, but rather they are observations as to how God generally often works. There are principles, guiding principles as to how the, of the fabric of reality. That's one thing to consider. There's something else to consider, not just the nature of the Proverbs, but the nature of our relationship with the Lord. We have no claims on him. We have no claims on him. He owes us nothing. God is no man's debtor. There is no way in the world we can say, 
I've lived this way, so you owe me that. That's what the health and wealth gospel is founded on. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's not what Proverbs 3 is about. Not in any way at all. This is not about our selfish gain and what we can get out of God. This is about a means to give. That's what this is about. This is, this is about our acting. This is about our believing and laying hold of the wondrous, amazing, astonishing promises of the living God and his acting on them and his supplying all that we need. This is about, no, this is not about, this is not about God's promise to make generous Christians rich. This is about God's promise to enable generous Christians to be even more generous. And those two things are worlds apart. both in terms of the motive and the outcome. Let me just say that again. This is not about in any way God's promise to make generous Christians rich. He may, but that's not what the text is about. The text is about God's promise to enable generous Christians to be even more generous in whatever way he chooses to. Whatever way he chooses to. This is meant to calm our fears and to check our anxieties, which are so great and so deep. And you think back to the first fruits thing, that, 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 that custom, that call, that uh, context. Think of how risky that felt. Right? If, you, if in an ancient agrarian culture, You've got your first yield. It's been a long winter. You've got your first yield. And the first thing you have, you're not to take. You're to give over. You have no means of a forecast of what the rest of the harvest is going to look like. No way of knowing how long and how good it's going to go. There is no accountant telling you what the next several days, weeks, and months are going to look like. This feels really risky. Except for who's promising, the, the one who's calling you to do this is promising. To, you can trust me. I'm going to supply for you. I'm the one who's giving this and everything else to you. Those first fruits. This promise that we see here, we'll put it this way, verse 10 allows for and impels, verse 9. The promise, the insurance, enables and impels the sacrifice and the giving, that selflessness and generosity. It frees it, 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 it impels it. Put another way, as a general biblical principle, God always supplies what he demands. God always supplies what he demands, including here. Keep your thumb in Proverbs 3. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul is 
writing to the church in Corinth, mid-century, excuse, well, middle of the first century. It's in the context of the collection that he is taking up from churches in the Mediterranean area that he has planted, and it's an offering that's going back to some starving churches back in the region of Judea. And chapters 8 and 9 in particular in 2 Corinthians are just soaked through with his writing, his appeal, his rationale uh, for all this. And in, in uh, chapter 9, I just want to read, well, we could read so much more, but just read chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. And you see this, again, this, this idea, this theme, God always supplies. God always supplies what he demands point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So again, the principle, this idea of radical generosity that is enabled and compelled and assured only because of the radical promise of a radically good God who is saying, I desire, I long to work not only in you, but through you. Not just in you, but through you. So how are we able? How are we able to honor the Lord with our wealth? How are we able to give him this due weight only by trusting in the promises that he has given to us? Now, why is this important? Why do we need these reminders again and again? And why is it that God gives us these assurances again and again all through the Scriptures? Because we struggle here. We forget. We drift. We, we begin to put our hope and trust in just all the, the wrong things, the bright and shiny things, as opposed to the good, true, ancient, and steadfast things. An article I was reading from The Atlantic, uh, this recent article, lays out some of this. The, uh, I want you to see some of the pressures that we're under as a church, the, the context, the cultural pressures that we are under. So if, if, if we go according to how everyone else around us is, this is where it'll take us. And we just tend to do that, even as those called to be salt and light, a light on a hill. We tend to be more often be imitators as opposed to initiators. New article in the Atlantic. 2017, Americans spent $240 billion on jewelry, watches, books, luggage, telephones, and related communication equipment, twice as much as with inflation-adjusted dollars as in 2002. Twice as much. Now, hang on. During that same time, the population grew by only 13%. Now, you math geniuses, think with me for a moment. Our numbers as a populace grew by 13%, but our spending on those items increased by 100%. That's the culture 
in which we live. That's, that's the air in which we breathe and just need to acknowledge that and be aware of that. Something else. Um, trends. Did you know, I was shocked to read this just this past week, that during the Great Depression, during the Great Depression, American Christians gave somewhere on the average of about 3.3%. Today, that's at about 2.5. So in the Great Depression, people hardly have coins to rub together, can't hardly put food on the table, but giving away 3.3%. And today, in all this abundance, it's 2.5. I'm bringing this up because this is the pressure. This is, the, again, the air in which we breathe, the stew in which we cook, the, 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 the uh, marinade in which we're soaking, and we cannot help but be infected. I was going to say affected. I'll say infected by that. We just can't. So there, there's a battle on all the time here. Now, again, I, just as a clarifier, I, this, this text, Proverbs 3, in no way is, is trying to get us to focus in on what we can get, but rather what we can give. Not the gifts, but the giver. Not gain in any way, but, but generosity. In no way are we being given liberty here to, to throw down a gauntlet, a challenge to God, and saying, hey, this is what I've promised to do for you, so you need to come through. No. <laughs> this is about his promise and challenge to us. You trust me. You give to me with this generous impulse, and you watch and you see how I will meet your supply to give yet even more. That's what this is about. An opportunity for us to be instruments in the hands of God and the lives of other people. Now, just, let me just stop. Think for a minute. Followers of Jesus, this should excite and entice your souls what I just said, an opportunity for you to be an instrument in his hand in the lives of others. It should excite us, should thrill us, should send electricity up our spines. An opportunity for us, just ordinary folk like you and me, to be the instruments in his hands of blessing in the lives of others astonishing thing. What honor, what a privilege that he would bestow on us. Again, he is showing us here this, these paths of wisdom. Part of that means giving him his, his due and trusting him in all things. Okay, coming back, wrap this up. As I said in the beginning, the Proverbs is the way of wisdom. The Proverbs ought to be read, understanding that this is the, the counsel of a king to the prince how to wisely rule, the counsel of a father to a son, how to wisely live, well worth saying, well worth reiterating, but that's not enough. Because ultimately, the Proverbs are the living words of Jesus. These are the living words of Jesus to us today. 
they, the Proverbs, are embodied in the life of Jesus. If you want to get a sense as to what his life was like, you can see it. It was a proverb-shaped life. And this is what he longs to see in his people. And praise God, it is what he is working in our lives even now by the influence and power of his Spirit to make our lives look more like this. Okay, so keep that in mind. This is the living word of Jesus for us now. Now, back to this, the theme of what we've been talking about here this morning, this call to trust him with everything, to honor him, to give him due weight in everything. And this trustful scenario, I'm going to play with it now just a minute. Imagine you're doing this with somebody else. You know, you go through the whole thing, hey, I'm going to stand up behind you, and when I say go, you just drop back and I'll catch you. And they're like, no. No. And definitely not with you. Okay? And that's what they're saying. It's not just no, but definitely not with you. How do you feel? What's your visceral response? What's the question that erupts from your heart? What did I do? How did I betray you? How have I earned your distrust? Now play that out, and if the Lord indeed is in calling us in a way to a, a, a life trustfall, and we are refusing, what is the question that is due from his heart? What have I done? How have I earned your distrust? Are my promises not great enough? Is my track record not clear enough? Is my character not beautiful enough? In Jesus, can you not see me well enough? Friends, our hearts, my heart, our hearts are rife through filled with worry, fear, and anxiety. Why? There's, no, there's nothing rational behind it. Why? We have fallen under the witch's spell. The queen of underland. We are in her thrall. And all the while, the living God is standing there with his arms out wide, giving us this promise and this assurance. Trust me. I will carry you. I will catch you. I will walk with you. I'll provide for you. I've shown you my ways. Walk in them. You are mine. I will not let you go. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this passage and the whole of the scriptures that are just rife through with such assurances. Bold things that you call us to be and to do in this world that would otherwise sound like madness. To forgive an enemy, to confess a sin, to be humble, to be gentle, to read, to pray, even to come here on a Sunday morning. What are we doing? Is this sensible, or is it madness, or is it acting out of the promises of a good and a holy, generous, faithful, merciful God? Oh, we pray that you would 
Help us to hear your word and to live out of it. Oh, would you help us to see the the generosity of your heart and your generous ways with us even today. And make us, every one of us, those instruments in the hands, your hands, in the lives of others. We pray these things in your name.